We are in Acts chapter 1. We're going to bounce around just to a couple different texts tonight. We are in a more topical Bible study that we are doing. And somebody asked me uh, last Sunday, they said, are we going to go back to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and talk about the filling of the Spirit? And it was like, yeah, well, we haven't done it for two, three weeks. It's going to happen just because we're in that cycle on Wednesday nights when things change from, from being normal. And so we're talking and what we're discussing and trying to focus in, in on is the silent shepherd's ministry, especially in your and my life, that's called the filling of of the Holy Spirit. We were, we were only partly through the study that I had prepared for three weeks ago, and I wanted to pick up where we were at. And we had talked about, and we've mentioned this most every week, there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. And that is because there are a lot of different errant teaching, wrong ideas that people have, that they have just grabbed um, something and some experience or text, or they've had something go on, and rather than compare it to Scripture, they just, well, this is an experience, it feels good, let's try this. There is another reason why it happens is some of that confusion is because the terminology. When we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, last time we were together we pointed out that that term shows up in scriptures both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And as you're talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, you and I would typically say, well, the same term must mean the same thing in both eras. Not necessarily true. That's not the case. And that creates some of the confusion when we talk especially about this term because we know it happened in the past, pre-Pentecost, and it is commanded today. So we will, some will automatically assume without in-depth Bible study that it's the same, and that's not true. We do know that the Holy Spirit was working in both eras of time, Old Testament, New Testament. It's the same Holy Spirit. He didn't change. It's the same, it's the same divine being, and let's add this, it is his same divine desires. The Holy Spirit wants to have, wanted to have fellowship, wanted to help believers in the Old Testament. He wants fellowship and he wants to help believers in the New Testament. So we have the same person with the same desires who is working to fill people. But when we compare the phrase filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, there are some differences. And that's something that sometimes it's confusing for us. But there is this reality. Some of you will catch this right away. Before I go any further, there's different people who were filled in the Old Testament. Patriarchs, prophets. They had that experience. There are some of the, uh, the political leaders, the kings, the judges. Now what I highlighted here was a couple different instances where it shows some of the kings... They, that had the experience like Saul, it came, it went. Samson, the Spirit's filling came and then it left him. And there was a time where he didn't even know that the Holy Spirit had left him. David is so concerned about that walk with the Holy Spirit. When he is filled, he says later on, do not remove thy Holy Spirit from me. And so that filling of the Holy Spirit is a little bit different than what we experience today just by the nature of today we don't have this leaving of the Holy Spirit. He does not remove from us. And so we need to do a little bit more in-depth study to find out what does the New Testament say about it. Concluding on the Old Testament, it did happen a number of times. It wasn't a unique once in a great while experience. It happened frequently. But it happened to select individuals. In the Old Testament, it was usually those who were in some type of uh, position where they are leading. They are, they are representing God in some special way. And so it wasn't basically something 
something that the crowds, the commoners, the, uh, the working man usually experience. We don't see that in the Old Testament like we read about it in the New Testament. Something else that's a little bit different. In the Old Testament, it wasn't a permanent work. The Holy Spirit would come and go. In the uh, Old Testament, it happened to both godly and ungodly folk that they had this filling of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit in the epistles, it doesn't work that way, godly or ungodly. It's more focused on the godly. And so there are some of those nuances. There are some of those differences. Jesus predicted that that difference, that change in the ministry, would occur shortly after he would leave. In John 14, 15, 16, he says, when I leave, and it's expedient. He said, it is a must that I leave so that when I leave, I shall send you, or the Father shall send you another comforter. Okay. And so he says it was, it was essential. It would happen shortly after he left. When we get to the book of Acts, this is the occasion where there is this transition, where there is this change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In this case, in Acts, you read in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and you get the sense of what is going to happen in the near future. He says, wait for the promise of the Father, in verse 4, to his disciples, that you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be, future tense, baptized with the Holy Spirit, how far? How how long from now? Not many days from now. Now that means okay, shortly as they're coming up to Pentecost and then if we were to flip all the way to Acts chapter 11 verse 15 Peter talks about that these others that he shared the gospel with in particular Cornelius, they received the Holy, same Holy Spirit then the same working of the Spirit that he and the others received that began on that day Pentecost. Okay, and he refers to it as that day. So Pentecost is targeted in the book of Acts as the day of transition, the day of change, the day when the Holy Spirit incorporated or initiated an entirely new administration of work. And so it's a very important time. Now at that time of Pentecost, and this is where we left off last time we were studying, we were pointing out that what he does in Acts chapter 1 and 2 in describing this new work of the Holy Spirit, he uses two different terms. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 1, describing what's going to happen. He refers to it in verse 5 as a baptizing. A baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Jump over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, he says they are what? He doesn't use the word baptism or baptizing, but in verse 4 of Acts chapter 2, what does he say they were with the Holy Spirit? They were filled. And so he's using the terms synonymously. A term that was found in the Old Testament, a term that's being used synonymously in the book of Acts, which creates a whole bunch of confusion because some some of us would automatically conclude, without in-depth study, we would automatically conclude that term was used in the Old Testament, it's used in the book of Acts, it must be happening the same way as it did in the Old Testament and at Pentecost, without thinking any further. And it must mean that the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit because they're used interchangeably, they must mean the exact same thing. It didn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because in the New Testament, the terms and the function, everything was changing. Everything was in flux in the beginning of the book of Acts. They didn't have deacons. They, by the way, did, was there a, did they ever talk about a church in the Old Testament? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. They referred to the church of... Israel, the gathering of Israel, is that the same? They use the same term. Is it the same idea as church today? No, 
No, not all. See, let me see if I can illustrate this way. When, um, when we were growing up in Minnesota, there was this big thing of snowmobiles first coming out in those early years. One of the biggest sellers of snowmobiles, and I knew this because my dad started selling them, one of the biggest uh, sellers of snowmobiles and producers at that time were Skidoo. I don't know if any of you remember that. The terminology that most people use for snowmobiling in our region and even advertisements, even, um, even uh, resorts, that they would set up a snowmobile trail, they didn't call it snowmobiling. They called it skidooing. I don't know if that might have been unique to Minnesota. And so for the first couple of years, everything was skidoo. And there was even, you could even look up, I looked it up on, on, online to go back to, you know, Minnesota verbiage, skidooing was the term for snowmobiling. Okay, and so they just took, they took a term that became popular and they rephrased it and they made the brand be the event itself. In time, that word changed. In time, the, it became more brand-oriented and snowmobiling became the thing. Um, do you remember years and years and years ago that when Xerox was one of the first copy machines? You go back in the dictionary and it's called Xeroxing. What was Xeroxing? Photocopying. Xerox was the only one, and so people just took the term and say, we're Xeroxing. No, today we would say it was photocopying. They'd take the brand name and they apply it. There, you, we take terms sometimes, and we grab them, and we just, we can easily assume this term means this, but it, terms change. They can, they can be differently applied at different occasions. Church. It was used to describe the called out ones of Israel. That's all church meant called out. Was Israel called out in the Old Testament? Yes, they were called out of Egypt. Egypt, that's the reference. That they were called out of Egypt. Hebrews refers to them as the church in the wilderness. Okay, it sounds like a song. Okay, but, the, uh, but it was referring to, to that idea of the Jews being called out. That's not the same as when we say church today. Church today has a different, uh, in fact, church today doesn't have manifold different ideas. For some groups, when you say church, you're talking the building. When you, for some groups, it's denomination. For some groups, it's the people. Okay, I remember when I first got saved, I was being raised Roman Catholic. For me, church was organization hierarchy. And so I'm talking to my aunt, I'm witnessing to my aunt. I don't know much scripture, but I do know by this point, church is people, not a building, not not. A denomination. And so she was saying, I suppose you're going to tell me that you guys could worship God anywhere. You don't have to go to that special building where there's relics of the saints. And my response was, yes, absolutely. She says, you can have a church service out in that field where they just spread manure. And, you know, she was being very caustic. And my response was, we could. Don't want to, but we could. Okay. And so the terms change with groups or with occasions. In fact, terms change with our experiences, right? You have that in the Bible. Did they ever take the term baptism and get it twisted? Okay, you have all kinds of things. Disciples, it was a twisted term. It meant different things. Well, so did the filling of the Holy Spirit. It, was at, it can be easily twisted or it can be misunderstood. But we have to understand that as time went by, the term was used differently to describe a different work of the Holy Spirit. Still the same Holy Spirit, still with the same goals to help, to assist, 
But the actual outworking of the filling of the Holy Spirit in our age is not the same as what happened in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament came and went. Okay, godly, ungodly. In the book of Acts, it was tied with, when it first showed up, tied with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet when we go into the epistles, as the church and its doctrine was being um, explained, as it was being you know, what, what's developed, then all of a sudden we come into the New Testament epistles and the term filling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, they mean different things. They mean different ministries. And that is where we're at today when we talk about this filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's deal with the baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. If we were to take one text, now it's mentioned in Acts, but if we were going to take the, one of the explanatory texts, you would grab your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's flip there. And he's going to talk about, and we're going to see very clearly by the time we're done, that the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit are obviously, though they were synonymously used at Pentecost, as time went by, they were divided. They were, they were uh, explained differently. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look what he's doing in this chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he is going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the gifts. He talks about that in verses 1 down through verse 11. He ends up at verse 11 saying, It is the self-same, that one Holy Spirit, who divides to every man severally as he will. That is, he gives out the gifts of the Spirit to select individuals. He chooses which gift you get. Now, we'll deal with that. We'll come to that after uh, another couple weeks. But let's go down to verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is who? Jesus Christ. Okay. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. He's talking spirit baptism, not water baptism. He's making this clear. Okay, by be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and we've been made all to drink into one spirit. Okay, same spirit working in all of our hearts to do something. For the body is not one, but what? Okay, and then he goes on and he makes the illustration the spiritual body is like your physical body. It is one, but does it have many elements or many parts? Yes, and those many parts need to Work together. Whatever term you want to put. But it's the idea. The unity and functioning. And so he's given us a little bit of an inkling right here. We're going to see another text where he does this in Romans 6. He gives us a little inkling about there's a spirit, uh, work of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Spirit. It was first initiated. Jesus predicted it to start at Pentecost. And he is now developing it here and saying, here's how it functions. If you look at verse 13, here's what you come up with. Okay, we know it occurred at Pentecost. We know that's the case because Acts 1 tells us. But as it's described in this text, watch the little, the little nuances. It tells us it's for genuine believers. It's for believers. It also points out in this text, it was for all believers. We'll come back to that as we, with other verses, but keep this in mind. As well, he is saying in this text, for by one spirit are we all, all of us. Oh, by the way, by the way, we all includes Paul, and everyone at Corinth. Are the Corinthians your most spiritual people? No. In fact, what does he call a lot of them? You are carnal. Okay? Some of you are spiritual, but a lot of you are carnal. So he's saying, well, one spirit. 
We are all baptized into one body. And then he says it's Jew or Gentile. That was different. Okay? That was different. Because in the Old Testament, the filling was more limited to the Jewish people. Now he's, it's expanded. Whether bond or free, we, and look how we emphasize, we have all been all made. So it's for all believers to drink that one same spirit. Let's do a little bit of jumping. In Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts that by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto how many of us? Okay, which is given unto us. <laughs> Stop there. Okay, he is again using the plural saying, we've all got this. In Romans 6, know ye not, now this is another expansive passage on the baptism. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ... Okay, we're baptized into his death. Okay, therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death. For if we have planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be involved with the likeness of his. Okay, okay. Now, isn't this a picture of salvation? Death, burial, resurrection. Okay, and in this text, he's saying this is something that is experienced by all of us. Well, who's all of us? Who's the all that have been buried with Christ and risen and going to be risen with Christ? All the saved, all the believers, exactly. And so he's making it very clear. And he makes the comment in Galatians, for you are all the children of God by faith. You all, again. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. He's equating baptism with your salvation experience. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, if you're saved, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, into the body of Christ. It's a simultaneous thing. Let's, let's, let's make a couple statements that build with that. Okay, it was for believers, only for believers. The New Testament is going to make this clear. The baptism work of the Holy Spirit that began in Pentecost were, was only for believers. Watch how he says it in Romans chapter 8. For you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit dwells in you. Okay. Now, if any man doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you, what's that mean? You're not saved. You're not saved. Okay. So, how many saved people have the Holy Spirit? All. Okay. When did you get that Holy Spirit? Okay. According to these texts, it happened when you got saved. Okay. Okay. So we go on, we say, we know this, it's a gift from God. And the reason that we know it's a gift from God, okay, is the terms that he uses when he says, we, I have given you. It is, I have gifted you. The original language is very clear that it is something that is gifted or given to you in that sense. God has not called us unto uncleanness, but to holiness. He therefore who despises God, uh, despises the word, despises one another. Um, Let me set the scene, if I recall right. This text is talking about you and me not defrauding one another. Whether it becomes financial or becomes sexual. Okay, that's the context of this text. You need to take care of your body. You don't abuse somebody else's body. Guys, don't take advantage of some gal, is what this text is talking about. And then he's talking about you possess your vessel in honor, not in dishonor. Don't despise other brethren. Don't uh, be non-charitable to them. And he goes on that despising. He says, therefore, whoever despises, you're not despising people. You're despising God, who also has given, gifted Gifted us the Holy Spirit. He talks about the same thing we read already. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is, the word is the gift. 
given or gifted, gifted to us by God. So that gift of the Holy Spirit for you and me comes to us when we get born again. It automatically happens at the moment of our salvation. Did you feel it? Did you know it happened? Now, some of you may have. Some who are like me are kind of more ignorant. You know, I'm part of that ignorant, deplorable group. Okay. Okay. I had no clue the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place when I got saved. All I knew was I was a sinner. I needed a savior. And I didn't understand what was happening behind the scenes. But it happened. I didn't know there was an adoption taking place. But it happened. All I knew was I was being forgiven of my sins and given eternal life. But behind that was happening the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens when we get saved. Interesting how Galatians put it. Received you the spirit of works of the, or did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? How did you, you, you receive the Holy Spirit through faith. Okay. Are you so foolish then, having begun in the spirit, are you not made perfect by the flesh? And the answer is, we cannot be made perfect by the flesh. It is faith, not works, that not, that's, that not only saves us, but sanctifies us. It's that working of the Spirit. And so he's making that very clear. Let's see if we can add another statement. It results in the indwelling. The baptism produces the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You all know this one, where he says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which, you, which is in you, you have of God, you are not your own, you've been bought by the price, therefore glorify God in your body, which is the Spirit. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Know ye not that you... Uh, knowing not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit dwells within you. Again, this is carnal people. Carnal people, carnal Christians, can have the Holy Spirit living within them. They do have the Holy Spirit living within them. Okay? Which, by the way, what does that do with our eternal security? It guarantees it, because he cannot deny himself. And how long do you get the Holy Spirit when he moves in? forever okay so he can't reject you so that's it's really really important which the result of the indwelling it's going to be permanent jesus predicted this would take place that when i leave i'm going to send you another comforter who will abide forever where in you okay so he's predicted all this change so the baptism of the holy spirit now here's here's where it gets down to the spiritual nuances that i didn't know was happening when i got saved in 73 I didn't know that that, I think it was Monday night. I didn't know when I prayed that night that this was happening. But the Bible says that I was baptized into a body. What that means is I was spiritually united to all the other believers. How? How did that work? It was through the Holy Spirit. But he says in that 1 Corinthians, the body is one. It has lots of members. All the members of the one body, being many, are one. So also is Christ. In some way, when I was baptized, when I got saved, I was baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit came and indwelt. And he also united me to all the other believers. So that you ever have this? You sense somebody you met. You sense, I think they're a believer. You ever have that happen? Now, it's not 100% guaranteed that you're going to be right. But has that happened to any of you on a number of occasions? I, that person, I think that person's a believer. You get in conversation and you say, I just knew there was something. There was something here. Okay? And so that unity that we have, that sense of that unity, we then call that the family of God. You know, this large spiritual body of Christ that has never met. It will not meet until what's the, what's the occasion of its first meeting? It's, got, it's rapture being in heaven. 
Okay, there isn't a pastor or a deacon of this universal church. It's just this family of God concept. But we also have the macrocosm of that big thing, the small pictures of local churches where there's a unity that's supposed to be displayed. Let's go a little bit further, okay? Um, We're going to jump into this last thought. It results in the believer being also not united just with one another, but with the baptism of the Spirit, we are united to Jesus Christ in a very special way. We get, according to scriptures in Romans 6, that we were baptized into his death, that we were buried with him by baptism into, into his life, and so we'll also into a likeness of his death. Some way... Somehow, the Holy Spirit, when we pray to get saved, he does this that some of us didn't even sense. We are spiritually tied to Jesus Christ forever. How does that happen? What does that look like? I don't know. All I know is I am united. I um, I become a Siamese twin with Christ. And there's never going to be a disconnect. And it is the most glorious fact that we are united to Christ forever and ever. That we are his and he is ours. And so that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which results in this indwelling of that spirit that he baptizes you and he parks within you. Which means God is in, this this to me is a, I, I can't explain the thought. I am at such a loss at words. God is in you and me. God lives here. Why he chooses to live in this vessel or that vessel or that vessel, it's his sovereign choice. But he lives here. He is so big that he can live in the universe, and yet he is so gracious to live in our hearts. Amazing. It also means that God really, really, really wants intimacy with you. He parks within you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He's there. He's communicating on a a level that nobody else communicates with you. Amazing. Amazing. It means that he's not just a passing through. We sing that about this world. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. But not Jesus Christ. He's not passing through. It's like this person of the Godhead has chosen to live within me, representing and tying me to Jesus Christ. He's within me. He's staying here. And I can't shake him. I don't want to shake him. And he's never going to get so frustrated. He's going to be gone. And, and, he will never leave nor forsake me. He's never, now for some of you, you'll understand the heart, the heart here. He will never, he will never be taken away. There will never be a funeral for my Christ. That I'm going to have to say, I'll see you later. And we're separated. Never. Never. This is permanent. This is, this is the one person that will never say, Mom and Dad, I'm moving out. Okay? This will never be, this will never person that, it'll never happen. And he says, I found a better job somewhere else. And I'll leave you. Or he'll never, ever, ever say, I am sick and tired. We don't get along. I'm out of here. Never. He is with you and me forever. What a wonderful, wonderful thought that he chooses to do that. That he and his grace. Okay. The question we have is, does he have full access to our house? That leads us to this other you know, synonymous term in Acts 1. But then as it's developed, it's not synonymous. And that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. You've got to go to Ephesians chapter 5. You're, most of you are familiar with that. You can quote that. I'll put it up here. But Ephesians 5 is the one epistle statement about the filling of the Holy Spirit. What he says in this one epistle, 
in this statement gives us a whole, a whole, uh, 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 you know, pages filled with doctrine about the filling. The filling is not, in this era, in this time, it is developed into something different than the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Are they related? Yes, they're both tied to the Holy Spirit, tied to the Holy Spirit who wants to work with you, tied to benefits or products of your salvation, but there's a big difference. Okay, Baptism, how many are baptized? All. All. For how long? Forever. Okay. And that ties you to Christ. What about the filling? The filling, oh by the way, when did the baptism happen? When you got saved, it happened automatically. Right? Okay, what about the filling? Totally different. It's commanded. If it's commanded that you do this, then who has a say in this? You do. You do. You, you let it happen. I'm not going to say you make it happen. Because it is the, the verbiage here is you let this happen to you. But if you don't let it happen, it's not, it's not automatic. It's not forced on you. This has got to have your permission to say we're doing it. Okay. Uh, some of you came up this evening. You came and there was people working on their car. Yes? Okay, and several people asked me, they said, did you know somebody's working on the car? No, I didn't know they were doing that until they just showed up. And they used a convenient spot. I understand. This is a very convenient spot to pull in under our portico. It's out of the rain. They can work on their car. It's just a lousy night for them to choose to do that. Okay? Which I felt bad for them at the same time. Okay? But they didn't get permission. They just kind of parked there and it didn't work out. Okay? So they kind of force it. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, I'm going to fool you, and you have no choice. You're just going to, and here's what you're going to do. Now, did that happen in the Old Testament that some people, he just automatically filled, and they couldn't control the prophesying that they did? That's true. That happened. That happened to the men that, is, that Moses was working with. That happened to King Saul. So it was more of a forced situation. Does it happen today? Not according to this text. According to this text, it's commanded, which means you have a say in whether this is going to happen in your life or not. Okay? It is not automatic. Not all believers, therefore, does this happen to. When he's writing to the Ephesians, he is saying, be not drunk with wine, where is the debauchery, the foolishness, but... I want you to start being filled with the Spirit over and over and over again. He's writing to believers. It's an available ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers, but it's not automatic. He is saying that they have to have a yes to it, the Holy Spirit doing it. It needs to be done repeatedly. The baptism doesn't. Because how many times do you need to get saved? Once. Okay? And you're united to Christ for how long once you get baptized? Forever, the Spirit lives within you. But the filling of the Spirit, as we see in Ephesians, it's different. The filling is to be done repeatedly. You need to be filled with the Spirit time and time and time and time again. Therefore, it's not a permanent ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, he does, that doesn't mean he leaves you. It just means this aspect of his ministry isn't permanent. And so what is that? It is very simply letting the Holy Spirit control you. And the Holy Spirit will control you. He will fill your sails. He will move you along as long as you say, okay, Holy Spirit, I need you. I really need you. I'm going to yield to you. You take control. You guide. You, you direct. He will do that, but he's going to, uh, going to ask for you or going to pr- encourage you to say now. Here, this moment, that moment, this day, that day. And
and he will take control and guide and help you through your different issues. And so this work of the Holy Spirit sometimes is called walking with the Spirit in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans. It is called being led by the Spirit in the book of Romans, chapter 8, in the book of Galatians. It is that ministry of yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that you have a say in. It's possible, it's beneficial, it'll be fruitful, but he doesn't force this guidance and control, though he's living there, it's up to you whether you give him full access to the house. You can stop this ministry of the Holy Spirit by sinning against him. Now in the New Testament, there are three sins mentioned about how you can stifle the Holy Spirit. You can hinder his filling, his guiding, his leading. Okay, well one of them I shouldn't even include in that statement. One of them is the most popular. It is the one that comes out of Matthew chapter 12 and really it doesn't, it doesn't apply to you. It is that ministry, of the Holy, that, that sin against the Holy Spirit that's called the, blas- the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's from Matthew chapter 12. That whole discussion in, in, uh, in that one is basically you can sin against Christ during his earthly ministry, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit, you shall never be forgiven. Okay? We understand what that one was. Okay? Is that one when the Holy Spirit is prompting? Okay? When, when all of a sudden... Um, you know, Bob, the Spirit's wooing and pulling him to get saved, saying, or the kids, you were at camp. You were teaching, preaching the kids at the camp that he, Bible camp he ran. And the Spirit's pulling, 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 pulling. If they keep saying no to the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen to them in eternity? They won't be saved. They won't be saved. Okay, we understand that. That's not one that we can commit. But there are two. There's three sins mentioned. But there's two of them that apply to Christians against the Holy Spirit. The one is found in 1 Thessalonians 5. And you need to go there, because we're going to wrap up with just these two passages. Because you need to understand how you can do this, and the passage shows you how you can do this. If you're going to avoid it, you've got to know what to avoid. It says, quench not the Holy Spirit. When you think of quenching something, what comes to your mind? Putting a fire out. What is the Holy Spirit represented as? One of those, we said, clothing, a dove... Was he ever represented by tongues of fire? Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's that idea of quenching the fire, suffocating the flame, putting something down that is trying to blossom, trying to bloom in your life. The question you and I have that's very important for me and you tonight is how do we do this? How do we quench the Holy Spirit? Look at the text. If we take the text, the statement within its context, where he says in verse 19, quench not the Spirit, look at around it. Okay, it's not just a series of thoughts that aren't tied together. He's giving thoughts that have a consistency. It is this um, whole bunch of ingredients that in and of themselves, they look different. You know, the flour, the sugar, the eggs, the soda, they look different. But when they're blent together, they're combined. Okay, blending together these verses, what kind of actions, what kind of attitudes quench the Holy Spirit? Well, if I go back to verse 15... Okay, what kind of quenching do some people do? How do they do that? They render evil for evil, vengeful thoughts. Okay, they, they don't follow after that which is good. Okay, what do they fail to do in verse 16? Okay, okay, let, let's, re, let's rephrase that. Let's make it real practical. What kind of person are they? They're a grumpy person. They're, they're a, you know, they're a dismal person. They're just, they're like a lot of the Clinton supporters right now, okay? They feel totally, totally defeated, okay? 
And they, you know, it's tough to rejoice. And by the way, we've been there. We've done that, some of us, you know, when, when we've had elections. We felt that way. He says, no, wait a minute. You as Christians, can you quench the spirit in your life? Yes, by being morose. By letting the rainy day absolutely tear down your spirit. What else? Verse 17. How else do you put down the Holy Spirit? How else do you quench him? You, you don't pray. What about verse 18? You don't give thanks. Especially, watch what he says in verse 18. This is the will of God concerning you. To be a thankful person. You know, verse 20. How do people quench the spirit? How do they sin against him? They do despise the prophesyings. In that, that's discounting the revelation of God. That is ignoring the word of God. You know, they don't hold fast to that which is good. They don't abstain from all appearance. If you look at the text, he's giving us a series of different actions or attitudes that very easily, they stifle the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The leading of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit that results in, in the, uh, the singing and making melody in your hearts. And, and, and encouraging, working in your family and loving your spouse and loving your kids and kids obeying. That whole thing. Now, there's another passage that talks about the very similar thing. In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, you want to flip there? Okay, back a little bit. This will be our wind down here. In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, he's going to give another sin against the Holy Spirit that hinders the filling of the Spirit. Do you remember what it is? Not quenching the Spirit, but it has to deal with emotions. Grieving the Holy Spirit. Okay, grieving the Holy Spirit is really simply causing great pain. You know, have you ever grieved somebody close to you? Okay, I have grieved my wife at times. That's not, that's not to be a proud statement. I'm saying that with embarrassment. I have grieved her by a lack of sensitivity. I have grieved her by assuming too much. I have grieved her at times by speaking harshly. I have grieved her by not being sensitive, period. And that causes grief. That causes pain. You all know what I mean. You've been there. You've done that to some people. Okay? I don't think I'm the only one in this room who's ever, never done that. But it doesn't make it right. Can I grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah. Now look at the text. I can cause him pain. How? Oh, my word. Look at the flow of Ephesians chapter 4. You back up to just the previous verses. Like in verse 25. You know, be renewed in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new. If I don't put on the new, what do I do? I grieve the Holy Spirit. That includes such things as what? What does he say I'm supposed to put away in verse 25? Okay, then lying. We're supposed to speak the truth. We're not supposed to lie, to exaggerate, to try to, you know, to shift blame shift. That grieves the Holy Spirit. What about verse 26? Anger. Okay, un, 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 um, unjustified anger. Unresolved anger. Anger. What about verse 28? Okay. Taking that which isn't yours. The stealing. Okay. You know, not laboring the way we should. What about verse 29? Oh my. Verse 29's got a whole bunch of stuff. And what's it all focus on? Your mouth. Your mouth. You mean we can grieve the Holy Spirit? We can cause the Holy Spirit pain by the words we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that old adage? Sticks and stones? Yeah, right. Right? But, you know, sticks and stones break my bones, but names... Yeah, right. Really? We hurt people more by what we say than anything else. 
Okay? And he's saying we do that to the Holy Spirit. In fact, he goes a little bit further. As you go down to verse 30, he says, okay, don't do this. By the way, in the original language, it is stop. In other words, it's something believers can do. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. They're doing it. And he goes in verse 31, how else do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Your attitude, our bad attitude that we have towards other people. The bad words, the bad attitude, the bitterness that we hang on to, the wrath, the clamorous speech. You know, that, that just letting somebody have it because they disappointed me. I had to stand in line and that clerk couldn't count change. And so it's my right to just unload on them. Clamorous speech, evil speaking, putting away from yourself, be kind, forgiving, unforgiving, we know. is All these different spots here, that's grieving the Holy Spirit by not... I mean, do you ever get grieved when your kids don't treat each other properly? Does that grieve you? Okay, same here. When your kids, God looks and says, my kids don't treat each other right, and they have the wrong attitudes, that grieves me. That hurts me, the spirit. So he's made it very clear that you and I have the filling, the opportunity to be filled. We've got all the spirit that we're ever going to get. He's in us. He's a person. He's not, you don't divide them. You get them all. But the question of the filling is, how much of you does he get? You get them all with the filling, I mean, with the baptism and the indwelling. But now, how much does he get of you? Do you, do you know how it kind of works? Do you, you know, some of you have done lifeguarding in the past. When somebody is struggling, how are you supposed to approach them if you're going to rescue them? Swim, swim straight towards them and try to grab them from the front. No, why? Yeah, they're fighting you. They're fighting you. You've got to, to render help. What do you want them to do? Not fight against you. You want to get behind them? You want to do something so they are not wrestling you. Otherwise, if they wrestle you, they take you both. You both are in danger. Basically, the filling of the Spirit is stop wrestling. Stop wrestling with the Spirit of God. Stop arguing over what he's convicting you to change. When he's challenging you, do this, deal, forgive that person. Stop arguing with him. When he's saying, treat your spouse, treat your family better. Stop arguing with him and justifying your conduct. When he says, you've got to go make things right with somebody. Stop arguing with him. I want you to go witness to this person. And he burdens your heart. He challenges your heart. Stop arguing with him. Let yourself be filled with the Spirit. Let him give you the strength, the wisdom to say the right things. He'll use you. That's the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is, okay, just stop being focused on how you feel and what you want and yield to the Spirit. And as you do, you have this filling. Here's, here's the bottom line. If you and I are truly believers, we're baptized. We're indwelt already. The question is, are we letting the Spirit fill us, control us, guide us? He is an amazing partner. Thank God we have the Spirit.